This is Josh Levent, and you're listening to Humans, a podcast for people who want the world to slow down and become more human. Welcome to episode two. Today, I am speaking with Mosidi Modise. Mosidi is a South African finance entrepreneur and social entrepreneur. When I met Mosidi, I was immediately calmed by her presence. Her empathy and kindness make her human, as well as her energy and passion to make a difference in her community and around the world. We talk about her upbringing in the Free State province of South Africa and how she ended up running a guest house at just 20 years old. We also spend some time talking about running and nature, which are passions we both share. I hope you enjoy our thoughtful conversation. And now, I bring you Mosidi Modise. Welcome to the podcast. Mercedes. Thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. So, what's your full name, actually? Musidi. Musidi. I don't have a middle name. I have been given one, but I don't use it. It's not on my passport. It's not on my ID. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us what it is? Palesa, which is a flower. Musidi Palesa. Yeah. And your surname? Modise. Modise. Yes. Musidi Palesa Musidi. Modise. Modise. Yeah. Cool. And what, what language is that? Sisutu. Sisutu. Yes. And you were born in... Um, <laughs> Say it. <laughs> kwa, wa. kwa. 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 Yeah. So you take your tongue, you click it at the top. There, there we mm. go. And then kwa, kwa. Kwa, kwa. Yes. Which is in um, South yes. Africa. Yes. Whereabouts in South Africa? In the Free State Province. Mm -hmm. Where's yeah. that? Free State Province is right at the center. So if you mm -hmm. say we're driving from Johannesburg to Cape Town, it would be your midway. Oh, okay. That's the best way to describe it. Cool. Uh, t tell me about your about your parents, actually. They they are cool, conscious people in their own different light. Mm. Like I have a mom who's very in touch with herself, her spirituality, and yeah. The older I get, the more I appreciate or get to kind of understand it better. In the beginning, I used to think she's a bit too quiet and too withdrawn. Mm. But then I see it comes from like a deep place and it's inspired by her mom. Like my grand, I'm actually named after her, is like Dalai Lama in my life. Like mm. she's just an incredible human being with an uncanny capacity to love unconditionally. And like, you know, we all exist for that mm. at the end of the day. So... Yeah, how that trickles through my mom, um, the older and older she gets as well. Like she becomes less forgiving, more, no, sorry, more forgiving, mm. more loving, more tolerant, and just like has a good spirit mm. around her. Like everybody just gravitates towards her, even though she's so like introverted. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's incredible. And my dad, he's great. He's really funny. Um, we don't have so much a close relationship as we do with my mom, but he's a good pillar of strength and support. And, like, you know, he's always rooting for our eyes. Like, he's our biggest cheerleader. Mm -hmm. And just, yeah, like a proud, proud dad. Um, yeah, who, who, who's just, yeah, he's a spiritual being trying to have a good um, epic experience, not so in touch with, as my mom is, mm -hmm. but is enlightened as well in his own light. Mm -hmm. And also he's in a transitory phase in his life where he's going into retirement. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be interesting um, seeing how he like, yeah, approaches that phase in his life. Mm. Yeah. 
do you know a little bit about your parents' childhood or uh, how they met even? Yeah, so how they met, my dad was actually a lecturer at the college where my mom was mm. um, studying. They have about a six-year gap. Um, yeah, and she used to be a model, like mm. not part-time, and yeah, just got a lot of attention but was very like quiet and wanted a good, stable life. So for her, it was not about like, you know, being all model, but just like, just like living a simple life. And then my dad and her met and he used to help her with her schoolwork. Um, he's from a family of 11 kids and she's from a family of six kids. Um, they're both very like close to their siblings and they're both the eldest kids. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they got married when my mom was quite young, like she was 21. Mm -hmm. And my dad, I guess, was 27. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it must have been 27. So, so yeah, I have been together for about 14 years and then decided to separate thereafter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's 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 them. And how many kids did, did they have? Three. Three, so yeah. you have two siblings. Yes. And you grew up all together until... How old were you when your parents separated? So I was nine. My sister was 11 and my brother was 14. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we grew up together for a good part of our lives. I'm um, with my sister, like mostly. So we went to primary school and high school together. And then my brother changed schools when he was about 16, 17. Mm -hmm. And went to go live with my dad and we stayed with my mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and but we very close, very, very close with my sister and then close with my brother as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. And what did your parents do professionally? So my dad is a medical technician. Mm -hmm. Um, at like the local hospital where he stays in Kwakwa. And then my mom's been in quite a transitory um, phase. So what's interesting as well, like he comes from a family of professionals. So all the brothers and sisters are like teachers or they like they have like relatively professional occupations. And then my mom comes from a very entrepreneurial um, family. Like even till today, my grand is still very like actively selling something at 85 wow. so that's kind of like trickled down to all the kids yeah. like none of them actually have a very formalized um occupational yeah vocation mm. um they all have side hustles those that mm -hmm. do and so it, my mom like she she did a couple of things and now she's just focusing on being a social entrepreneur so yeah. looking around community development with a focus on women and also wants to take what we call a staple back home called pup. Mm -hmm. So she's she's introduced like a healthier alternative okay. and wants to get that into the market, it, which could be very good because every South African, whether you're rich or poor, you eat pup. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, we're talking about like allergens, like mm -hmm. it's like night and day, like what's been sold quite commonly on the, on the market. And what she has is like, completely different so mm. it's just about trying to find access to market mm. um, for that product for her so cool. that's what occupies her a bit interesting yeah wow. do you know what your uh, what your earliest memory is I, I think it was a little birthday I think I was turning two or three wow. goes that far back mm -hmm. I think there were two there's two distinct ones I still draw back on and so that one where I was turning two or so and you know, just dancing and just like very antsy child. Mm -hmm. And my mom, my mom says till today, I'm like, I always say I don't bode well with holidays, five days at a beach. Mm -hmm. A holiday must be filled with adventure, moving from one place to another. Yeah. So, so it's it still trickles through because I was always like this antsy dancing child with ADHD. Yeah. 
And then the second one was this one sitting, um, glaring at the stars with my dad, like just because there wasn't so much pollution then. Mm-hmm. And like he was just teaching me what's what. And wow. like, just like, you know, I remember just sitting with him on the stoop, or stoop is like a pavement. Mm-hmm. And just like, you know, just, just for him instilling, like, you know, you must look up and dream up wow. in life. Yeah, those are the what two. What age were you when? I must have been like five. Yeah. Five or six. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so did you grow up a, a dreamer? Did you feel like that carried through through your childhood into yes. teenage years? Yeah. Always. Like, you know, even when when times were tough, I'd always escape through the preferred future I would have, you mm-hmm. know, despite, you know, the trying circumstances. Like mm-hmm. I could just always just visualize it. And then there was a time in life where, you know, like you just going um, quite fast. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you feel like you're a bit on a treadmill mm-hmm. and you forget to kind of do that. And now, but I'm deeply into it. Like we'll talk about it a little bit later, like this spiritual transition that you kind of alluded to when you're talking about the other podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and the importance of your visions and mm-hmm. how they, they are the kind of the the... the the key to to you unlocking things yeah yeah what was your vision of the future when you were say eight years old i wanted to be a chef mm. yeah i wanted to be a chef and there was always just yeah this this thing around family mm-hmm. like just always being around people um yeah i think i wanted to be a chef always wanted to create things when i was eight did your parents teach you how to cook Yeah, I come from a FM on my mom's side. They're all very good cooks. So, so it carries. So we always grew up around food being made, mm-hmm. um, and it kind of like trickled through. Yeah. Yeah. Does your Does your grandmother still make dishes for you sometimes? Yes, she yeah. does. She does. She's a bit old now, so she burns everything. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 yeah, she what, tries. What's your fam- favorite grandma dish? Um, it has to be these uh, buns that she makes. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be your worst night, maybe. They're so <laughs> delicious. Um, yeah, and she was quite famous for them. She used to actually sell them, and mm. everyone in the street would come to her house and come and buy them. So wow. they're just like these typical like buns that come in batches of twelve. So I remember our house being full of, well, her house being full of these like distinct tins or um what well, yeah the, the oven tins mm-hmm. made of um the they kind of like when you buy oil you know when olive oil comes in like a big a can, a can yeah. like those one liter cans yeah. so they cut them and then she would bake the buns in there oh, so wow. every morning you'd wake up with that smell mm-hmm. before you go to school yeah. and then i used to when i was in primary school i used to like um come to her house first and have breakfast there uh-huh. so tea and a bun and then go to school oh, that's so nice. it's it's yeah it's something synonymous with the family those buns yeah. and then she carried that through to my one aunt who started selling them as uh-huh. well so always it was always the means to an end yeah. in the family i see yeah and yeah. as you said entrepreneurial yeah taking what you what you, skills you have and making use of them yeah wonderful Do, do you remember what your favorite t- uh, subjects were in primary school? I liked more of the creative ones. To be honest, I was not a big fan of the sciences. Mm-hmm. I loved languages and I loved um, history and I loved a little bit of geography and a little bit of biology and then a little bit of maths as well, but not so much science. Like, okay. I was not a big fan of the... Um, the science labs when yeah. there were kids that were like they were in a candy shop 
mm-hmm. within the with, science with the chemicals, and with the chemicals. That was well, that was me. I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I like to watch things explode. Oh, and, <laughs> yeah, and the lizards and like all the stuff in the petri dishes. Mm, yeah, fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you have a kind of favorite creative expression uh, mode? Did you love to paint or sing or music or something as a child? I like to write as a mm, child. Um, a little bit of coloring in because mm-hmm. like my even till today everybody comments on my writing how it's it's not your usual one it's like okay. short wide and fat okay. uh, but because it, it took me a long time to learn to write properly mm-hmm. like um yeah much thought was in it and i remember like when we transitioned into a different school it was highly competitive environment everybody like it's a school of excellence in mm-hmm. its own so you kind of feel like when you come to these global shapers things like you know what's my place yeah. in this place of brilliance right. and then you just like i figured out early it's like what can i be really good at and then yeah. what can i not even bother with and I was just like there was this one girl Eleni who used to write super neat and I was just like I want to write just like her and so like take my time learning to like write just like her where everything is streamlined Uh so because I'm left-handed so I, I tend to like you know lefties have you seen how lefties Whole. I just know it's difficult because you tend to smudge what you write. Yes, you, yeah. because you kind of like you have to, yeah, you fold over your hand around it. So, so yeah. Um, so writing was one. Coloring in, I think, was the other. Um, and not so much drawing. But mm. I, I, I really wish I was gifted art-wise, like to do sketches and stuff. Because mm. I appreciate art a lot. Um, and just, yeah, I wish I could just express it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't be good at everything, I guess. <laughs> um, did you do any other um, uh, arts uh, through into high school? I used to sing in the choir, mm. both in primary school and in high school. I think, did we have a choir? And then would have little roles in um, like the dramas and stuff when we had drama. Yeah. I'm short ones. Like my best friend, she was the queen of the TV. I mm. wasn't that extreme, but I would always just like... Um, participate in a small play or something but I played nice. a lot of sports so and then the, there was mm-hmm. there was a very clear thing that so you rather you take your sports very seriously or you you the performing arts, you, the performing arts yeah. very seriously so I chose the the sports. former yeah what was your your sport hockey mm-hmm. and running yeah were the big ones all right is that short distance running or? um like for, um, five ten kilometers so mm-hmm. so which like later on i i started running marathons as a mm-hmm. result and mm-hmm. i played a bit of tennis mm-hmm. but but wasn't like professional or anything mm-hmm. but hockey was the one where like i i played quite competitively mm-hmm. yeah you were in the school hockey team yes uh how did you guys do we fared well the primary school um, hockey team, like they used to produce all the top um, national players. Wow. So we moved from the school that did that and like swimmers as well. So top wow. swimmers and top um, um, hockey players at national level. Mm-hmm. And then you would meet up with those girls in high school when they joined the schools that were also like kind of grooming them for that. Mm-hmm. And we fared quite well. I enjoyed the team spirit that's still in there. And I still see the girls that I played hockey with till okay. today. And like, yeah, I bump into them when I, when, when some of them that live in Cape Town. Yeah. We still have good rapport. And that's where the relationships were forged through yeah. the hockey team. So we did fairly okay, but we were not, you know, tops of tops. 
but I find it interesting how very strong relationships get built in this kind of competitive environment where you have to work together yes. and work very hard. Yes, and you spend a lot of time on the road mm -hmm. because like some of the schools would be like an hour or two away and yeah. or you'd have three or four games to play mm -hmm. and you're always in a bus yeah. and training together. Yeah. What was your favorite bus games? <laughs> or did you sing songs on the bus? Or sing what was songs. Yeah. yeah, we'd sing songs. <laughs> songs that were eventually annoying to the trainers and the staff or no like the schools you you know would have i don't know if you had that but we'd have like war cries so it's like uh -huh. this song that's synonymous that's just synonymous with this is cool when yeah when you go like you know you show when you go to like compete with other schools yeah that's how you like make everybody know that you're present i see yeah so you practice those on the bus yes yes cool. yes <laughs> and um you moved city when you were nine Yes. You moved to Blomfontein? Yes. Why was that? Cool. Just cool. Um, it was a girls' school, so I've been in girls' schools most of my life. Um, it was cool. Um, it was really nice. Mm -hmm. um, that's where, you know, I found myself. Mm -hmm. And because my parents are not together, my mom worked really hard. Mm -hmm. She, We were pretty much raised by my grand for that big part of our lives in primary school so I learned to be very independent very quickly mm -hmm. so even till today like I don't consult a lot I just do and ask mm -hmm. for apology mm -hmm. when needed right. and I think it stems from that that sense around like if it's to be it's completely up to you so it yeah. was a nice period in life the girls school I'm glad I left that one then at mm -hmm. that point in time um, the one you were in in, in primary school with, primary school, yeah, yeah. It, it would have been a bit of an overkill to be in high school there, yeah. even though it seemed like the best thing ever, the change was good. Yeah, I see. Yeah. How was it to make new friends? Um, Easy, very easy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, very easy. Because like one just has like a very, like I'm a very open mm. person, like extroverted, but in, I don't get energy from people. Mm. But I'm a good extrovert as well. Yeah. Um, so it was very easy to um, make friends in that yeah. regard. That's nice. Yeah. In high school, do you remember some having some some inspiring teachers? Um, I think. Mm. I guess that means no. No. <laughs> Is it okay to say no? Yeah. <laughs> um. There's no one that shoots the light out, to be honest. Interesting. Yeah. What was your favorite subject in high school? Um, I enjoyed Afrikaans. <laughs> okay. The teacher was cool. And she effectively became a mentor because they would sign you up with a teacher. Mm -hmm. And she's just like such a warm um, old woman. And yeah, like just very human. Yeah. And no ego, no airs and graces. She just liked what she did. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. And yeah, because of her, I did really well in Afrikaans, surprisingly, even though it's not like my primary language. Yeah. In South Africa, you have quite a lot of languages. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, what languages do you speak now? So I speak English, Afrikaans, Susutu, um, and that's about it, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the other ones, um, African languages, I hear some. And then some I just don't understand at all. Yeah. Yeah. And which did you learn first, Afrikaans or English? Um, English. Right. You learned that, started learning that in primary school? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And Afrikaans jointly, because we kind of inherited 
it from the apartheid thing, unfortunately, where yeah. English was always a, a primary or secondary language. Like there were some schools where they're purely Afrikaans and still right. remain so till today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did you? When? Tell me about a little bit about. I'm curious about kind of the other aspects of high school, like social aspects. How yeah. was that for you? <laughs> it was. It was. It was cool. It was cool. Um, I had all this like pockets of friends, so I always avoided hanging out fully with the cool kids because they came with their own stresses. And so my my one best friend, who we still friends till today, she hung out with them, but we would always come collectively together. And then there were these three. They were not so cool kids, but they were really awesome, nice people. So I always gravitated towards positive, pure energy. Um, and then, like, yeah, through the sports, I managed to make like a lot of friends. So I was relatively sociable. Mm-hmm. But like going to um, um, a girls' school, you either thrive when there's guys or you don't. And I was one of those that just like, you know, the, that's not in my periphery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even when you go to socials, you just like you're not there to kiss boys; you're just there to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was that was pretty much high school okay. most of the time. And then you went to university yes. in Johannesburg? No. So after high school, I really, really wanted to be a chef, but uh-huh. I wasn't sure whether it was the right trajectory to take. Yeah. So my mom was like, well, why don't you take time off and go to England and mm-hmm. you know go explore a bit? Cool. So I took that up. I um, went to go live in... I worked for a summer camp and they kind of would place us in different areas around the UK yeah. and then ended up working in Scotland um, at Turnberry Hotel mm-hmm. um, as a waitress there and then worked a little bit in London and then went back home. So, and then afterwards went to back to university in the free state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. How long were you in the UK for? About a year and a half. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. What was the strongest memory from that experience the sunrises in 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 um asia where i lived uh-huh. and like it was in, in farmland as well so yeah it was such a beautiful place like what a privilege actually to have a you know experienced a glimpse of that london was a bit overwhelming i'd live in london any day now but mm. as like a a timid 19 year old it was a bit too much yeah but I have fond memories of Scotland, like mm. the people, their accents. Yeah. And they're so friendly. And they're so friendly, like yeah. they just want to help. Yeah. And just those sunrises and sunsets um, yeah. in the summer there was just incredible. Where, whereabouts in Scotland? Um, in Ayrshire. So it's on the side of Glasgow, uh-huh. near a, a little village called Girvan. Okay. Um, and so Turnberry Resort is just, just there. I see. Yeah. So it's kind of closer to the West Coast. Yes. Interesting. I was just in Scotland a month ago. Oh, so. wow. Okay. Yeah. But you said you, you were in w- well up. We went from, we flew to Glasgow, and then we took a car from there up to Lossiemouth, which is up on the north coast. Nice. Or the north east. Okay. From there we went to the Isle of Skye. Nice. And then we crossed back uh, to Edinburgh. Nice. And then back to Glasgow. Very yeah, nice. So that That's a good trip. Yeah, it was really nice to actually, you know, we rented a car and we drove through the highlands and that's just so beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. 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 Did you have a chance to go explore around 
the Highlands? I did a little bit. I, we, I had friends from Isle of Skye. Mm. Uh, the one guy was working with me. I'm still friends with him. They were South African family. But I never got to go up there. Uh, but got a chance to go to Edinburgh mm. and would explore the different little like cities where they had like the whiskey distilleries and mm. stuff in the uh, along the West Coast. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever have the chance to go to the uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival? Yes. How did you find that? I loved it. It was yeah. really good. We um, were just there totally by accident. We kind of didn't really realize it was on and oh. we planned the trip and then we were like, oh, there's this thing in Edinburgh. And you enjoyed it? <laughs> we loved it. Yeah. yeah. And did you see the military tattoo? No, we missed that. Okay. Yeah, yeah that was cool. That was cool. It's like a big marching band, right? Yes. Yeah. Like, like they come and march and around in their kilts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in their kilts and with Scottish music. Yes. And, yeah. I heard something. I was reading a little bit about the history of the Edinburgh Fringe. Because it started as the Edinburgh International Festival, yes. which still exists, actually. Yes. And um, it was organized, I think, by um, some uh, Scottish lords or something, or one Scottish lord who, or, or actually, maybe he was not even Scottish, I don't remember, but somebody, some British uh, person wanted to create this kind of international festival in the UK in mm. some city that was nice for tourists to come to, to okay. really attract, like the world's greatest um, performance to come to Edinburgh, but it, performance really in, the, in a very classical sense. So mm. they put on, you know, philharmonias and uh, orchestras and uh, uh, operas and classical plays and so mm. on. And um, and then some people, I think even the first year, some just kind of, yeah, artists on the fringe said, hey, why don't we just organize something yeah. alongside? And they didn't call it the fringe then. They just said, this is, you know, some some extra stuff we're organizing. And uh, it continued every single year alongside the international festival and became much, much larger because they, from the beginning, had this policy of open access that anybody could join. There was no requirements. Anybody just sign up and say, I'm performing here Mm. and you're part of it. Oh, wow. Um, That's why there's something like 4,000 performances. (laughs) Really? Um, And how long did you guys stay for the performance? We were just there for two days, I think. Okay. It's just enough anyways. Yeah. And uh, how long does it go? I think it's three weeks or four weeks. And um, of course, uh, stuff repeats, and um, we, it's, it's funny because I think we we missed one. We bought a ticket for one show that we missed because <laughs> oh, okay. they closed the doors at the you know minute of the wow. start, and oh, then wow. didn't let people in late because it was kind of this audio experience with headphones and in a play and a, something really kind of amazing. But we just we, we didn't see it, and then we saw um, a circus performance nice. and some comedians. Right, awesome. What was your memory of the, of the? Other than the military tattoo of the French <laughs> fest. You know, it, it was actually the first time I had a, um, what's those burgers from Burger King? Those ginormous ones. The Whopper? Yes, it was the first time I had a Whopper and it mm. took me two days to eat. And yeah, my friend and I just like went in and went out on a train. Yeah. Yeah, so we did an in and out from... from um, from Glasgow to Edinburgh, so uh-huh. it was just a quick, quick. Yeah, interesting. Quick but the Whopper memory just still sticks. That's funny. <laughs> was there pretty, you, Did you have Burger King before, or it was just no, the first time? It was the first time. Uh-huh. First time, and it, like that day's junk food used to be the thing. Right. Like yeah. we used to make a fuss over junk food. Yeah. Sure. So yeah. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any other interesting memories from Scotland? Oh, it's, it's just it's just the nature. Just living in nature mm. there was just like yeah. yeah. It just it just it just affirmed that I'd prefer a place where there's nature yeah. 
than like in a big city, like you know, being gobbled up by skyscrapers any day. Yeah. Yeah. Just every day, you just see like horses, just running park, running by, and just quiet. That's nice. Yeah. Do you have that now? Yes. Where 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 do you live now? Cape Town. In Cape Town. Yeah. What is that like? Because Cape Town is also a large city, mm. but there was kind of quieter suburbs, I guess. Yes. So I live like in a shopping center, weirdly mm. enough. So my apartment is just above a shopping center. Okay. So there's chaos yeah. um, during the weekends and stuff. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in my apartment, it's quite like closed off. Yeah. And I have a very nice view of the Table Mountain. So oh, wow. it's just... When I wake up in the morning, it's the first thing that comes up. And in the summer, you have like these pink and purple um, sunrises. Mm. And then the sun sets. Yeah, the sun doesn't set that side. Mm. So it's just nice seeing everything over the mountain. And yeah, run, you know, walk up, run by the sea. And you just hear mm. the waves just like clamoring in. Mm. Um, and then during the weekends, you go and go for a two-hour hike mm. or can walk in the forest. And yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's life-changing. That's beautiful. Yeah, I realized in the la- just in the last few years how important nature is to me. What kind of sparked that? I think it was, was living in Milan. Milan? Yeah, because it's so there's so little nature there. It's just so gray and full of cars. And... I remember being there and just looking at, at a map for the nearest forest that I could go to. How far away was it? It, it was two hours away oh, wow. by, by train. And I just was like, how can this be that there's no forest anywhere near here? It was somehow like claustrophobic, mm-hmm. like I'm stuck in the city in mm-hmm. this. It's really strange. What were you doing in Milan? I was studying there doing okay. my master's. Okay, nice. Yeah. And I remember, actually, I think I did end up taking just one of the metro lines all the way to the end and then walking around there. And it was this kind of suburb and there was some greenery and some, there was parks and stuff. But it was strange. There was nothing, you could, there was no place you could go for total quiet. Just wow. in, in, in Milan, anywhere, there's wow. no, no place for total quiet. And like the streets are quite narrow. Yes. It, it, it depends where you go. I mean, yeah. there's the, the old town, which is very narrow streets. And then there's certain places where these this very wide Roman, you know, uh, vias and, uh, um, but it's all just all such a enormously built environment with, and just with an extraordinary amount of cars, not mm. enough, not enough underground parking spaces. Oh, wow. Did you have a Vespa? No, I got everywhere by tr- uh, metro and okay. by bike. There's these public bikes in Milan. Okay. Uh, you pay 30 bucks a year and you ride everywhere. Nice. That's pretty cool, but um, those streets are also not really made for bikes. I was, I mean, to be honest, it's probably a pretty dangerous year mm. I, I had there being on the bikes a lot oh, in wow. the Milan traffic where people just don't drive necessarily that safely. No. Wow. Yeah. And the food? Food is great. I mean, Italian food, yeah, I don't think anyone can really complain about that, uh, except being gluten intolerant. Of course, I couldn't eat pizza or pasta, which is, you know, what a lot of other people were eating. But they, but they, Italy actually has a very strong gluten-free culture. There's a okay. very big gluten-free brands. A lot of also good pasta that's gluten-free. So okay. I found plenty of good things. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And and it of course forces me to eat at home more, and yes. that's nice actually. It's, yeah. yeah. And you can get a lot of fresh produce from that's right. the markets. Although strangely enough, in Italy or in Milan at least, um, all the kind of regular kind of weekly markets have lower quality food than the supermarkets in many other countries it's the other way around but in Italy or in Milan at least 
the stuff that you get is kind of the stuff that they can't sell to the supermarkets, and then oh, they end wow. up selling it on the street in the oh, markets. Wow. And it's a lot cheaper, but or not a lot cheaper, it's a little bit cheaper. But um, but I just thought I'd rather go to the supermarket and get something proper, and I also didn't, don't need to worry about when is the market because it was just they kind of rotated around the city in different suburbs uh, once a week. Yeah, which is smart, I guess. And uh, was it influential towards your style sense or dress sense, the city of Milan? Yeah, 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 for sure. That's interesting. That's an interesting question, actually. But that's. I had just started thinking about that a couple of years earlier in 2013 when I was asked to do a TEDx talk and I thought, hmm, I need to... <laughs> what am I going to wear? Exactly. A money right? suit or shirt I just, without a tie? I just had no idea. And I, I, a friend of mine um, is a fashion uh, designer and I asked him and, and we kind of did an exchange. Like I gave him some life coaching and he gave me some, some uh, fashion advice. We went shopping together and he kind of made me an outfit for the talk. Nice. And since then I've just been a little or a lot more conscious actually of how I uh, also just a lot more intelligent about how I choose clothes because I realized I was wearing a lot of things just a couple sizes too big okay um, you know which kind of comes from childhood like wanting to grow into stuff and I just kept buying stuff bigger even though I stopped growing <laughs> 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 it's a sort of wish that you think you know, but maybe I'll be two meters like one day <laughs> no you're 22 like you've stopped growing <laughs> And, so, and then living in Milan, just paying attention to, and I was, you know, studying at a design school, so there was a lot of very well-dressed people around mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, it's city. It's like something that's very striking about Italians, mm -hmm. like how they take the way they look mm -hmm. um, seriously, but not in a like a, like they put clothes together. Yeah. Whether it's from H and M or from a Gucci store, right. it's creative. Yeah, it's creative. It's not. Um, it's much more creative, actually, than in Switzerland. There's a lot of really well-dressed people in Switzerland as well, but um, not as not as creative. Mm. Yeah. And 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 people just kind of stuff that, you know, New Zealand is a little bit. I grew up in New Zealand, and it's a bit a little bit more conservative in a way, but also simpler. Mm. Um, people don't think that much about fashion, and people might make fun of you for some of the fashion choices that Italians make. Like if I, you know, a lot of what was kind of in fashion when I was there was. Um, for men kind of having short pants yes, where you can see the socks yes. and um, in New Zealand if you would wear that people would make fun of you like crazy you know, that's, like, what are you wearing <laughs> yeah. but of course yeah that's a total I, I don't know if that's uh, I think I, I think that's kind of a, a longer trend I've seen that a lot of Italians with that um, and style. also in um, do you find the, the like people in Switzerland love black a lot with yeah. a pair of white tackies or sneakers no, no, but that I've, I don't think you ever see that in Switzerland. Oh, no, actually, that's true. No, yes, white, like Converse or something yes. like this. Yeah. And then everything black. And then everything's black. Yeah, that's. Or a white shirt. That's, yeah. But this, in New Zealand, we have this almost like, it's kind of like in America, this really poor style where people wear, you know, sneakers and uh, jeans everywhere. And this kind of, this is the typical. Yeah not much thought put into it just mm. a very simple like what have I got t-shirt jeans sneakers like you know with like colored stripes and yeah. like this is just <laughs> the, yeah and now you've started interviewing me <laughs> is there any harm flipping in that? the script <laughs> um <laughs> just feel like I have to take charge of the conversation okay. the reins are yours <laughs> so I'm curious now you about your university experience so you yeah. went back to 
uh, back to South Africa and you studied in um, um, Bloemfontein. In so yeah, the University of the Free State there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I enrolled in a marketing course. Mm-hmm. So I gave up on chefing. I realized yeah. there's no money in chefing. You gave that up while you were in Scotland or in the UK? I just gave up the idea altogether. Yeah. And then I was just like, I don't want to go to a cooking school. Mm-hmm. I actually want to plug into um, a university environment. Yeah. So why don't I study marketing? So I had the choice between going to do it in Cape Town or in Bloemfontein. And then my mom was like, I'm actually interested in buying the house we're currently renting Mm -hmm. and turning it into a guest house Mm. um, in light of the World Cup that was going to come in 2010 Mm -hmm. and I'd like you to run it Mm. whilst you're studying concurrently because my problem with Bloemfontein was that it was not going to be as enriching student experience as going to UCT so I was like, okay, that makes life interesting. And because I'd taken two years off, I was just like, I really just want to like, you know, swift through university. I don't want to spend time being a partying student and, right. you know, decreasing the likelihood of finishing in record time. And yeah. this business idea is nice. It's like you can kind of put theory into practice. Yeah. So yeah, off I went. So six months before I started, we kind of, yeah, we made an offer, bought this house, I mean, it was relatively big um, and then just started building out some of the rooms. Yeah. Um, it was a guest house. It was a running guest house. So just kind of like gave it our look and feel. And yeah, off I went to be a CEO of my own little um, Musidi Inc. Mm-hmm. It was called Your Own World Guest House mm-hmm. and started with one employee. And then it's just started getting a little bit of traction. So what is nice was that my classes were in the evenings Mm -hmm. and then during the day I had a chance like between, well not in the evenings, like from two o'clock onwards. Mm -hmm. So then during the day I would wake up and do the guest house and spend some time to prep for the day and then go to school and then Mm -hmm. come back. And that was my life for three years. It was fascinating. Yeah. What uh, happened afterwards with the guest house? We decided to sell it. Mm -hmm. Because then I came to a point where like I finished my uni and I was just like, you know what, I actually don't know what to do with life. I feel like I'm a bit at crossroads. Mm-hmm. I have no clue how to scale this thing into a hotel yeah. because that would be a sensible thing to do. Yeah. And do I really want to own a hotel? I'm not 100% sure. Mm-hmm. So then decided to go to school to go do my master's. I'm in Johannesburg, Mm -hmm. so like literally packed up my little card, took everything Mm -hmm. right in the middle, like just after the World Cup, just after graduation, Mm -hmm. packed up, went to go do the the, the MBA full time, which was intense for a year and a half, Mm -hmm. but a really meaningful, I think, right decision, even Mm -hmm. though it was a bit of an inconvenience with the business and stuff. It was, yeah, it was the right thing to do. What were the other students like in the MBA program? much older like Mm. yeah I was like 23 then the average age there was like 31 Mm -hmm. Um, so it made for interesting dynamics Um, but they were really nice even till today I see a lot of them Mm. Um, they remain good friends I learned a lot from them just like life skills Mm -hmm. so many of them and they knew how to party really hard Mm -hmm. so because you would work for like six weeks and then have like a week's break. And then after the week, you can just, yeah, take time to regurgitate, well, like take in all the modules that you did and mm-hmm. then go into the next stream of like classes. Mm-hmm. 
young. How big was the class? About 34 students. Mm-hmm. So it was not that big. And you got, to, I guess you got to know everyone pretty well, well over this. Very well. Yeah. yeah. I remember I applied for an MBA program and they told me that uh, I might be too nice to do an MBA. <laughs> Um, they that's did. Different. They did like a psychological profile, and they said, "Oh, you have a very high agreeableness score," and that's usually not the case with MBA candidates. Oh my gosh! <laughs> did you? And they did, didn't take you. No, they took. They wanted to take me, but uh, the, um, I, I didn't want to do it at the end. They okay. offered. They offered me a partial scholarship, and I was not convinced okay. <laughs> by the whole. Uh, especially, I mean, that was part of it, but it was just. I think the bigger part was. Um, the teaching style and the assessment style that for me it didn't work i did struggled really struggled in my bachelor's with okay. the with the um you know assessment through written essays yeah. and exams things like that um was not my cup of tea but how how did you find that uh, the the kind of personalities of of of, of mba students at the beginning where people because that's kind of what they told me they said you know one of the things that people learn in an mba program is how to get along with people because yeah. that's kind of the biggest skill you yeah. need as a leader yeah and and so i think what informs that is the bell curve mm. um so there's this skew towards if you are an a or b student you always remain an a or b student mm-hmm. your marks will just fluctuate between and then there's those a plus students mm-hmm. and they always have the unfair advantage and then there's right. those other students who find themselves on the other side of the the bell curve yeah. so it was interesting to see like yeah the a plus students they were the ones that are highly competitive extremely yeah. driven yeah. like they would work themselves to the bone mm-hmm. and then the b plus students you know we were in it for the ride yeah. um we're not really fast it would be nice to get the a or the b mm-hmm. um but it would be but we're not really fast so yeah. and then the the c and d students they were the ones always slacking mm-hmm. in the assignments mm-hmm. always like finding excuses around how other things mm-hmm. got in the way of them getting their marks yeah. um but equally so like they all made yeah for for i learned a lot like because that class was small yeah it, it taught me tolerance mm-hmm. Um, that like you know not not a, not everybody's your cup of tea but you have to tolerate them mm-hmm. otherwise you just bring unnecessary animosity and yes. unnecessary things to think about yeah in that aspect so yeah even people you don't like you have to get along with them yeah yeah, yeah it's a lot like with life like mm-hmm. you know we had such an awesome experience here as well but not everybody was nice mm-hmm. but you you just have to just get on with it yeah yeah so at the age of 25, you graduate with an MBA? Yes. <laughs> what does that feel like? Uh, daunting. Yeah. Because then it's like traditionally, especially like the average MBA student in South Africa is like 33, 31 mm-hmm. with like seven years of life or work experience behind them. Mm-hmm. The purpose of them doing the MBA is to go from, you know, A-suite to C-suite. So here I am with a degree that's very... Um, you know, lucrative, but I have no work experience. So, so, and there wasn't really a good fit. It was typically consulting and stuff. And I went to McKinsey's um, things, but would fail them all the time. And I, I didn't like the approach which they mm-hmm. took as well with a, yeah. you know, that's how you solve problems. Because yeah. running my business taught me how to solve problems <laughs> very well, actually yeah. better than McKinsey can sure. assess right. based on a- like numeracy and stuff. Yeah, and you have a very intrinsic understanding of issues and yes. a better intuition, and yes. their approach is highly reductionistic, which yes. may work for some problems, but I don't think it's actually interesting. There's this—I think there's a, a big philosophical question there. 
you know, some people might say, well, if the problem is more complex, uh, more uh, um, harder to get a handle on, you need to have stronger processes in yes. order to kind of distribute the work amongst multiple consultants and figure out a solution. Yeah. But to me, uh, this doesn't make any sense because um, complex problems have more uh, interconnections between different disparate aspects of the problem. Yeah. And so if you try to divide up the work, you end up not solving the real problem. Yes. And so uh, there's only real one way to do it, which is to get individual people to be highly immersed in the environment mm. and then uh, pulling out kind of their intuitive learning yes. uh, through some some sort of solution development. I agree. And, and that's what business taught me. And mm. like, yeah, I, I, I worked in consulting for about three years thereafter, but it really was not an environment to thrive. I don't know why I even stayed and did it, but I think it it takes a while to figure out, to have the courage to say, if something is not working after six months, go find something that does. Mm -hmm. It takes a bit of like maturity to kind of like ward off that fear to say it's okay. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, whether it looks good or bad on your CV, you determine it yeah. and it's how you package it. Mm -hmm. So, so, so yeah. So coming back to your question, it was like my, my stream or my main major in the in the MBA was entrepreneurship and mm. I remember there was this um, lecturer who was excellent Greg Fisher like big strong temperament but an excellent educator and good knowledge and depth around entrepreneurship which is incredible um, he still has very good um, yeah ra ratings um, mm. everywhere he teaches and stuff and he was like for you to succeed you need to develop like a high impact, high um, growth, you know, venture. And I walked out of that classroom come 2010, 20, late 2010, 2011, not having a single clue around what's the best place to do that. Right. And I really didn't want to go back to running a guest house or right. starting a lifestyle business. Mm -hmm. So just thought, no, rather leverage the degree to go and like get good work experience yeah. and so consulting seems to be the place where everybody if they want just a generic lay of the land while getting good skills it's the best place to land so ended up working in different consultancies mm -hmm. for a period of about three years mm. yeah that was management consulting management consulting and if i understand this correctly this is sort of you do client projects for sort of fixed durations like yes. three months usually yes. yeah the first one i had a little bit of autonomy i mean it was actually a former ygl uh, my boss mm -hmm. and he had a, a very keen interest in china very impressionable man like when he taught he just like drew you in like mm -hmm. you just want to tap into his knowledge mm -hmm. and was very uh, well regarded in the industry and he 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 had a different style of consulting mm -hmm. um, but, but it was also events driven and so i went and started the executive education component mm -hmm. of seeing how we can scale like this knowledge around china africa mm -hmm. into educational institutions so that was my responsibility mm -hmm. it was nice and i had a degree of autonomy but i was not learning skills mm -hmm. so i was learning good content I, I was learning good content mm -hmm. um that was interesting but when you're young you need as many skills as you can gain. Yeah. So thought it would be appropriate to go into an environment where you're learning the skills you need. So then ended up working for my entrepreneurship to um, lecturer at business uh -huh. school. Okay. And then his was more focused on management consulting where you do exactly that. You mm -hmm. go into a bank 
and solve a problem and make recommendations to management and then maybe you call on for the implementation mm-hmm. or you roll on to another one in a different industry. Yeah. What was some of the things that you learned in that process doing management consulting? Patience. <laughs> those who those some people should not be managers. Just mm-hmm. because you're good at what you do mm-hmm. does not mean you're good with managing people. Yeah. And I think that's the most frustration with most management consultants. It's always about individuals above. Mm-hmm. Um, like this friend of mine in Switzerland, he's like a serial consultant mm-hmm. and he's been everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, he just likes it. I think he's, he, for him, it's an environment for him to thrive. Mm-hmm. But his pain points have always been with individuals mm-hmm. above when there isn't an alignment of values or they're not about bringing out the best in people. They just yeah. see you as a workhorse. Yeah. To get stuff done but what well, i learned a lot around like yeah how do you go about frameworks for solving problems mm-hmm. um and then also just you know how do you look at things from a global and then a local and then a micro um view mm-hmm. every time you just want to think of a problem because mm-hmm. most of the time it's like not knowing the industry yeah. um being thrown into the deep end and then three months later you come out a mini expert about it yeah so it was great um while it lasted Mm -hmm. but i also had this affinity towards small firms and i was always curious about what's it like working for a corporate Mm -hmm. um and so had a hunger for that Mm -hmm. but then what i liked or what i resonated with with the smaller companies was they always used to have a much better culture Mm -hmm. um and in a corporate sometimes it gets eroded Mm. along the way so yeah. it was quite a mission trying to find a good culture up until my current company called me up and they were like we've got some roles would you be interested this is what we're about mm. and there i felt at home and this is um, now financial yes uh, advisory is that what it is so it's investment management so we mm. do what BlackRock does mm. on the continent so provide institutions and individuals access to investment products so mm. if you want to put money away for your education or you want to put money away for a holiday or you want to put money away for a house we will take whatever you give us we choose stocks and then we expose you to the value of the growth of those stocks mm. but over the long term what's the minimum investment for your clients 40 francs oh really mm, okay. per month Mm-hmm. And you moved straight from management consulting into mm. this. Yeah. Um, and you, you said that was kind of a dissatisfaction from consulting. Was that what drove yeah. you or was there... The culture was not, was not what mm. it, it was making itself out to be. And it was actually quite a disempowering environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can also, you describe that more? What, what was disempowering about it? So, so it's, it's where a woman has a queen bee syndrome. Mm-hmm. Like she's really good at what she does. But she shouldn't be making management decisions. Mm. And because she was so excellent and efficient, Mm. she could imbue trust from the owners, the shareholders of the business, Mm. but at the detriment of others. She was not about empowering Mm. people. Her lens of talent was also very skewed Mm. towards people that, as a company in general, they were were all chartered accountants. Mm. So the lens of what talent is and how they remunerated it Mm. was if you were a chartered accountant versus Mm. an MBA student, which I found very mind-boggling, but mm. 
yeah, I just realized and I remember the guy I was dating then, he was just like, this is just rubbish. Like, mm-hmm. get out of here immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, you're worth so much more. Mm-hmm. You can do so much more. And I was just like, you know what, you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, I should. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And how did you find Alan Gray? Amazing. Um, I walked in and I, w- I never thought firstly, I was like, oh, moving to Cape Town. It's such a weird place. Right. It's good to come for holiday, but living there, oh my hat. Mm-hmm. Let's see how this goes. But the time was right as well. Like I needed mm-hmm. a transition in my life where I, I think I, I'd done all I needed to do. And I'd gone through a little bit of a setback relationally and just, yeah, I just wanted to just start over again. Mm. So I, when I walked into my, like I, I went through a number of interviews and I was always like, it's all good and well to, you know, see what the people have to offer, whether it be money or positions. But I want to get the culture right, because mm. for me, that's important. I think I'm an empath as in mm. general. So. I, I I feel people's energy mm-hmm. much stronger than others. Yeah. So when I walked into Alan Gray, I just really liked the approach by which they like, you know, they bring you in and they really have like a good values driven business. Yeah. And they don't go wrong in trying to bring people in. Like, you know, you give when somebody walks into the office at Alan Gray and they knew, you know that this person, I give them six months, like, you either culture fit or not and mm. it's a good thing to have sometimes mm. it doesn't make you elitist in any ways it just makes sure that you preserve the essence of what the company about is about so yeah. I really like that about that it just like felt like coming home like the way they were so helpful with my relocation mm-hmm. like trying to relocate to Cape Town in December is a nightmare mm-hmm. because everyone's there mm-hmm. you can't find a place to stay right. and they just made sure that like I was properly taken care of mm. and yeah and I just like I was given six months not to do anything, just to learn, because I didn't know anything about the industry. Yeah. Like, we're going to pay you to just take in everything in, go yeah. into the client service center, have teas with people, try to get a better understanding around what they do, and then we'll check in after six months wow. and see what else you can do, which is not normal. No. Like, you know, most people, they like, you were a resource, wanted to get hit to hit the ground running. Right. But with them, they're more developmental. That's really interesting. Yeah. Very few companies like that. In the yeah. World. Yeah. And, and for them as well, they were trying to solve a few problems around like Cape Town is notorious with not having black talent stay mm. because it's quite an insular um, reflection, like an insular. You feel like you're in Europe in a sense, and it, it's quite a segregated environment. Mm versus other parts where people can go thrive mm-hmm. and and see and have a sense of good identity so mm-hmm. some people just don't have the resilience or the will mm-hmm. to stay it out so they were losing a lot of talent mm-hmm. as a result of that but also they felt like you know most people come into the company with like at a very low level like you're super smart you have two degrees and you start in the client service center mm-hmm. but then you don't like you don't want to trust the process so they were losing a lot of talent with that but because i had work experience they knew that i couldn't go down that path mm-hmm. and and i'm a culture fit but not a skill set fit mm-hmm. so we just need to kind of find a way on how we can align the two so they had to take a long term yeah. um, it's really interesting so they basically hired you without knowing what your contribution would be yeah Totally. And that's incredibly bold. Totally. Like, it's just like, you know, the, the now COO, like, and how they hire as well is in, is really incredible. To me, it makes way more sense, actually. You it's, reckon? Um, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this. 
um, it's this kind of arrogance that we think we know what the future will be. And so we, like you said before, you treat people as a resource yeah. and you say, here's the plan. Here's the, what the environment is going to be. Here's what we're going to do. And here's what we need to do that. And this, so we're going to hire people to fill these needs. Yeah. And this is the sort of arrogance of uh, believing that we know the future. Mm. I mean, we just, we have no idea mm. what the future will bring. Mm. It's going to be different from yeah. what we have today. And actually probably the best thing to do is to say we're a team whatever comes we're going to use our, all of our com combined abilities we're going to help each other and you know create the most value on the marketplace that we can together 100%. and if we're a strong team and we have great skills no matter what the skills are we'll find a way to bring 100%. value like the i mean it's a very to have alan gray in your cv in south africa is a big thing so yeah. you'd find these kids that come from position of privilege and i've heard ones that's like you know they get rejected they're like but my, my dad has a lot of money here <laughs> So what? Mm -hmm. We don't want you here. Mm -hmm. um, we want people who who can help build this culture and yeah. cultivate it and make yeah. sure that we retain shareholder value by the through people, kind of yeah, walking walking out our values. Yeah. So they 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 try to make that assessment in the interview process where, yeah. you know, you you interview if like as I ask coming in as an experienced hire. You interview with a few senior managers and then you interview with a CEO as well. And all he's there to do is just to kind of judge whether there's potential. Like, would would I be able to, if I took her through the ropes, could I easily see her in senior management based on who, the, who she is as a person? And, and, and they make a judgment based on that, not on what's on paper primarily. Yeah, people are not interchangeable. Like, no. you can't just look at the qualifications and experience of somebody and it's machines no. yeah it's crazy but we we've, we've entered that paradigm of you know we we see we see actually organizations as machines and and human beings as cogs and mm. of course like if that's your paradigm that's how you're going to treat people yeah um, yeah fascinating and so how long have you been there now it's going to be four years in january which is a record long because oh. i would change every year and a half yeah until i got here yeah, amazing. And after six months of being there, what did you start doing? Or what did you do in those first six months, actually? Oh, I, I worked on this incredible project mm -hmm. um, where, like, the product that we had, it's like a group retirement annuity. A lot of the people in the market didn't understand what the essence of it is about and internal stakeholders. So my boss was like, I've been meaning to make this explain a video about this thing. Mm -hmm. So why don't you project manage that process? Mm -hmm. And so got to work with this amazing, um, incredibly talented filmmaker mm -hmm. who lives in Norway, but is South African and he's an architect as mm -hmm. well. Lovely, lovely guy, um, Chris. So we normally use big brands like people who'd come from Ogilvy and stuff. Yeah. But then I was like, no, we'll take a chance on this one. Mm -hmm. um, and because his pitch was like really great yeah. and very like, you know, different from what we've seen. Yeah. And yeah, produce like, I'll send you the links to it. Um, yeah. Incredible piece of work. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Um, and just yeah, the process of like how, how I went about like, you know, trying to get insights around the script mm -hmm. and bringing his creative thinking together and working with him between when he was in Norway and when he's here yeah. and bringing in the final product and managing stakeholders. And I was like very, uh, like I, I, I enjoy the fact that I went in very naively around like 
mm-hmm. you know, stuff the politics. Right. You know, these people who are on their phones while you're doing pictures. Right. You know, right. just looking right. past that and yeah. not trying to play politics mm-hmm. um, was really great. And after that, yeah, I was trusted with a little bit more and handling a lot more responsibility. A bit more, okay. But that was a really cool thing to like kind of start yeah. with. And in that role, role when you manage a project, like you're like sort of the pivot point between the internal team and the external team. Yes. And was there someone else except for this filmmaker kind of externally involved? Um, no, just, just him. him. Yeah. Just him. And internally? Internally, a lot of stakeholders like brand and marketing. Mm-hmm. And like, because it went against the grail, so trying to fight that off and justifying why we should have it, even though it's not on brand. Right. It's it's not far off from brand, yeah. so give it a chance. Did, did they want to have creative control, or was it very kind of bureaucratically, like trying to just block things that were different? They they wanted to block things that were different. Yeah. So it was about like influencing different people. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it's it's one piece of work I'm really proud of. O- often these kind of projects really fail because they don't get through mm. through brand approval. Yeah. How how did that happen? How did you get brand to approve? My boss, like he's like he's very funny. He's mm-hmm. like just this loud personality. So he knows how to influence very well through his personality. Mm-hmm. And then the one guy who recommended um Chris, he used to be our head of digital mm-hmm. and could play his influence. And the head of marketing is actually also highly creative mm-hmm. and, and wants to see us doing things differently, but sometimes can be agreeable just for the sake of it because he can Mm -hmm. so because we had buy-in from from them it managed to like pull through and then we used to have this very diva director Mm -hmm. in the business who was just like she didn't like them Mm -hmm. but my boss like fought her tooth and nail Mm -hmm. to like kind of let them be Mm -hmm. yeah so it's still standing now yeah well what what was the product again that you were describing it's like it's like a a saving solution for Mm. individuals but then you group it together for companies i see yeah so the video was cleverly done as well in that it could stand on its own to sell it if you want the group the retirement annuity on your own Mm -hmm. or if you want it as a group i see yeah so you were selling this to companies as a kind of um compensation for their employees Mm. Then you said you started getting more responsibility. Mm. What kind of projects did you do or what kind of things did you do next? So we were building this company that's now at about um, a billion rands. Like we have a billion, we've amassed like a billion rands in assets under management within a space of like a year and a half. Wow. So I was part of that from scratch. How, how much is a, a billion rand in, uh, let's say, US dollars? In US dollars, it's about... 100 million US dollars. 100 million US dollars. Yeah, but, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, 90 million US mm-hmm. dollars. That's incredible. In a year and a half. A year and a half. <laughs> so, so it was, yeah, it was quite a big thing yeah. to be a part of that. But all of us were listening, were, were learning because none of us had industry experience into this, this industry that we're going in. Mm-hmm. And I just went to project manage the communications aspects of it. Um, generating like material that we'll give to the end user and then how we're going to go about like engaging them mm-hmm. and so that still remains part of my responsibility now mm-hmm. but being there from scratch is like yeah the depth of knowledge you have over other people in the business is incredible actually mm-hmm. and just accidentally yeah what do you mean by that accidentally you just amass like you know when you don't know something you just have to stop and go learn Mm. like like the retirement industry is very 
regulated, highly mm. regulated, and you have to be very well versed right. with what's required from a legal perspective. What does this mean mm. in that? So you're willing to do that research and really find, and that's, I guess, your management consulting experience really came yes. in handy there. Yes. Mm. Yeah, and like you, you get given a lot, like you have a lot of projects running and trying to tie them together as well. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. What are, what are you doing now with, with Alan Gray? So... Apart from the ongoing kind of work with that? Um, I also worked, so I last year when I came to do the Improved program, um, I thought it was really cool. Uh, Alok touched on it, mm-hmm. where they said, like, come to Nico raise money from um, some investors in Switzerland. And he's like, they're going to give eight shapers an opportunity to come to Shanghai and improve anything. Right. And then you had to write like a really punchy three-page pitch mm. and then align it to China. So mm. I was quite fascinated around the fact that China has this Hongbao culture during Chinese New Year mm-hmm. where they gift each other um, money and other things, but money is quite predominant. And how WeChat managed to digitize that right. um, gifting the, the experience. Red, I saw this envelopes. on WeChat, the red envelopes. Yes. So yeah. I was like, what if we could do that in the context of investing? So mm. instead of giving somebody a pair of funky socks, you actually gift them an investment that's oh, aligned with I goals see. and stuff. And nice. so one of the things I wanted to do was to come and test it in the market, that idea. And, and I pitched it to the CEO back home and he absolutely loved it he Mm. was like this is the one thing we've been looking for around Mm. how do we um, indirectly start getting new customers but not in a traditional sense Um, so so we parked it came to Shanghai worked on the project it brought about a lot of interesting learnings and then went back to go see how that thing could find a home and then because it's a big corporate, it was very difficult to get buy-in because everybody feels that we should first solve for those problems before we can make something like this come alive. And mm-hmm. became a bit discouraged, but then I was like, I'm not going to be fully actively involved in it, mm-hmm. but I'll just watch from afar and just give my input where, where possible. So mm-hmm. I've been kind of like looking at that. I'll come back to it later as well. And then recently... We've launched like the Alan and Jill Gray initiative. So Mr. Gray, who started the company, um, lives in Bermuda and he's got a very big philanthropic heart. Like he's done a lot in terms of changing the landscape of access to education for really brilliant students that come from marginalized environments and has helped them, you know, really unearth their potential by putting them into school from varsity to or sometimes from high school through to university fully funded so he's now um, made an endowment where the company Alan Gray is owned by a charity Mm -hmm. and all the the profits go into this this pot and this pot is like supposed to um, ensure that the company does social good so the money that would have gone to the Gray family um, it goes into this pot for social good where we have um, a footprint. So we have a couple of offices in Africa and we also have an international arm, Orbis, that's also owned by the company. So uh-huh. so um, the, the mandate is quite broad. Yeah. But because he lives in Bermuda, he realized that he's not in touch with the realities of where the need or plights are. So he said, I'm going to every year give staff, like say $5 million um, Mm -hmm. 
and then we're going to give staff an opportunity to feel what it's like to be philanthropic. Mm. So I sit as an ambassador on the board mm. that links the staff members with the initiative. Right. And then we hear what the staff want, like saying, I think you should focus on education and we think it should be early childhood development. Um, therefore, go and assess a couple of NGOs or PBOs dealing with that sector. So that's my other hat that I wear now um, to to do that. And my my aim really is to kind of like bring the framework that we that the WEF provides into that space. And given that we have to roll this out into the rest of the continent, the company on its own won't have a reach, but I could potentially reach out to the global shapers community mm. in like countries like Kenya and Nigeria and collaborate with them. Mm to like scale it out mm. roll it. and by scaling it out you mean scaling out the kind of uh, assessment of the of the the like identifying them mm-hmm. um seeing is like is ch- early childhood development a viable problem that we should be solving in nigeria for instance mm-hmm. the answer could be no right. so speaking to shapers could be no rather do health care or access to electricity or right. access to water so kind of finding the important issues yes, in, different markets. in different markets that we're not yeah. relatively familiar with yeah yeah very interesting yeah um and is the idea also to work across uh, different philanthropic organizations or yeah so the, the ideally we want partners strategic partnerships yeah. as well so you can kind of pull money and, and yes. everybody can contribute to yes to what's solving the problem in on a larger like scale yeah. a bigger scale but then the most important thing as well is that we have to ensure that staff resonate with it because mm. alan wants to give staff an opportunity to be philanthropic yeah so it's a big challenge as well we it's new there's a hype around it yeah. But we believe that like it's three, four years from now, it's going to be hard getting the momentum going. But mm. I'm excited. I'm excited. That's cool. Yeah. It's really, really interesting that he just really wants staff to get involved with that. Sort of, cause I guess he knows that he's not going to be around forever and he needs to teach people, you know, not just by example, but also kind of by experience mm. that giving money is... Yes. Is a fulfilling thing and yes. a way to make a difference. Yeah, yeah. totally. What's um, what's on the horizon? What are you planning to do next? So I got a very interesting WhatsApp mm-hmm. um, from one of the managers where there was a role available. They do investor education and um, behavioral analysis mm-hmm. for for business different segments of the business. So they're about running experiments, about testing what's new and what could be viable as channels to communicate with people and applying behavioral science principles around nudging people to make um, positive informed decisions around the investments. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they've been incubating this idea of the gifting. Mm-hmm. So he's, we have, we're supposed to have a call at some point today. He wants me to apply for the role as a senior BA in his um division Mm -hmm. so i'm like strongly thinking and leaning towards that uh, because it will give me an opportunity to learn to influence Mm -hmm. um and also just to learn good skills like that team have very good dynamic skills around like how to run experiments how to do a b testing how to apply behavioral principles to the language you use. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, they have, they, they don't add money. They're not a revenue generator as the current division I'm in, but yeah. 
they they do stuff they complement their business very well and coming like the past three days at here at the conference like just kind of gave me because when I when I early when I spoke to you earlier I was like I think you know I'm in a bit of a predicament do I go and you know pursue my entrepreneurial endeavors or do I stay within corporate and see where I can have the most impact yeah. and I think this is a good low hanging fruit where I could have the most impact mm. and also start like you know challenging the status quo a little bit by and then learning to influence in that regard like I don't agree with how we the decision to grow how we grow in the business in Nigeria is mm-hmm. not feasible and after speaking to um Fatimata um yeah what we're doing is we're completely missing the mark in the opportunity mm-hmm. and in Kenya as well mm-hmm. so being able to kind of leverage that um opportunity to run experiments go and do the same in those those markets right. um in Niger- so go to Nigeria and go and find out like what are the pain points of the staff they're trying to get market share and then yeah. run experiments around showing management to say actually th- these are some of the things you should be thinking mm-hmm. but then those ideas have an impact on brand so how are you going to deal with that right. and this gifting thing as well is very new and left field to say don't incubate it in the business go find a startup that can develop mm-hmm. something we can test and white label in a different name that's interesting and just see how you can help it's low, lower risk and you can check whether something works before attaching your brand to yes, it. Yes. So and 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 so I just figured like yeah, why don't I just do that for as long as I have to. I still want to one day run my own business and I mm. know I will, but like one of the shapers was like you you'll just be thrusted into it. It will just like you don't even have to open the door though. It will you'll be pushed into <laughs> the door. So so don't worry about it. Yeah. Try this is a good opportunity take it. So because the fact that he's asked me to apply is a good thing. Mm. I I thought about it in the morning and then I got this message in the evening and I was just like wow what a what a yeah. coincidence. That's great. Yeah. yeah. That, I think that's the both as a as a manager and when you're being hired. It's great when when you you know the manager knows who they want when they mm. say oh I, this person would be great and that person has been thinking about it and then mm. the person says hey look this opening would you be interested yeah and then you know that both people are interested and it's not such a competitive thing like yes. when you apply cold for a yes. job yes yeah. and and i'm looking forward to also just starting over on like a blank canvas i've had a, an amazing experience with the current team and stuff yeah. but just also taking stock of like you know your swat um yeah and then like building on you so taking your strengths and building on them mm-hmm. analyzing your weaknesses and seeing how you can um you know refine them and then like really leveraging the opportunities and kind of like navigating around the threats in a meaningful way to learn yeah as well that's nice so you have this opportunity it's not mm-hmm. it's not a done deal i guess this is mm. still still just a maybe yeah Tell me a little bit about. I, I, it's actually interesting because I've interviewed a lot of shapers, but we haven't talked that much about global shapers on my podcast mm-hmm. yet. So tell me about how did you find out about global shapers and through my ex. He was mo- he was leaving the hub and then I joined it when he left. Mm. Um, and then I just like liked the energy of it. Like mm-hmm. it was just such a a fertile ground to do things that I love, yeah. which is just like do social good. Like I always used to volunteer, volunteered yeah. for many years. So it was just a nice extension of that in a very formalized global 
um, environment. My sister was a shaper too, oh, really? so I saw the 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 fruits of of her leveraging the opportunity the opportunity really well. Yeah. And I was just like, this is cool. I should be a part of it as well. That's cool. Yeah. That's nice that your that your sister did that before mm. you. No, she's been here before. Like I was sitting with Hira, and I was like, "Oh, I'm Matsi's sister." She's like, "Oh my god," <laughs> you know. And there was a one time I remember I went to ACM, or it was a meeting in Africa, and the one um, somebody that works at Wave, they're like, "Oh, Matsi," comes and gives me like this long hug. I'm like, "It's not her, it's mm-hmm. me." <laughs> <laughs> I guess you look very similar to yeah. your sister then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very funny. <laughs> Yeah, no. So it's, it's been great. It's been really awesome. Like yeah. just, and like you know that you know that saying with Rumi, like what you're seeking is seeking you. Yeah. So you, you find that like yeah, like the more you want to do good, the more avenues will find you by which you can do it. Like you never yeah. back down at an opportunity to like do good. So this year, I was sitting having dinner with a friend, and she was like, "Oh, this friend of mine, she like runs this charity for burn survivors, and we're climbing Everest for it." Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. She's like, do you want to come? I was like, sounds cool. Let's mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. And then we went on this big adventure that's oh. unrelated to shapers, but it was just that whole thing of what it is that you're seeking is yeah. seeking you. So uh, you you went to, uh, to base camp? Base camp. Whatever it is. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. In May, it was incredible. Have you been? No. Never. No. Um, yeah. Very conscious place. Okay. Um, that awakens you. Oh, I never thought about about doing a trip like that. If you love nature mm. and you draw energy from the quiet, I highly recommend it. Mm. Uh, it teaches you a lot. Like I learned a lot in a, in a space of ten days. But life. You stayed in base camp for ten days, or you? No, you no. How it takes five days to get up and five days to come down. Yeah, it takes about yeah, it takes about nine days to get there and then we took a helicopter back because ah, the, the the track is like the same the same thing you saw going right. you see yeah. going back so, so yeah. nine days hiking uphill <laughs> not good for the knees oh, yeah sounds like a you get, you get very bad sunburn I see you look like a hobo coming back <laughs> <laughs> how many of you were there together 15 15 mm. wow it's a big group mm. so you 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 all together and camp together and yeah. you go in summer I guess yeah what's the weather like cold cold mm. starts off in the day it's cold and then you kind of like you have to wear layers and start stripping them off mm. uh, but you always have to have like thick pants yeah. um, and then the closer you get towards base camp the colder it gets, the colder it gets. How, what's the altitude of base camp um, four th- 5,400 oh yeah, yeah. That's pretty 5,430 or something. I think the tallest mountain I've been on is three and a half or something like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Even though we have a lot of 4,000ers in Switzerland. In Switzerland, but, yeah. Um, yeah, just haven't haven't made it a thing yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you learn a lot from that experience. Like, mm. it's the one thing that teaches you that success is about going slow, actually. Mm. Like, we should never be in a hurry for mm. anything that's interesting like we have our whole lifetime to achieve what we perceive needs to be achieved now mm. um, therefore go slow in mm. everything because if you go fast in a mountain you'll get altitude sickness and not finish so yeah. you can't rush it wow and like I you know, thought about that it made me think about you know what else 
is that metaphor applicable to and it's like a lot mm. of things in life like mm-hmm. you know a lot of us are suffering from career altitude sickness mm-hmm. we, we go too fast yeah we want to yeah. go too fast and we just stress ourselves and misalign with our values and 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 so because we live in a world where success must be now to yeah. outdo the other person right. so that the perception is xy you know like when you when you go slow magic happens like mm. time always buys you the ability to be very creative yeah. as well so mm. so we we should nurture that it's hard yeah but like a mountain forces you to do that right. it's really tough yeah and you don't it's easy if you take it one step at a time and stop mm-hmm. taking the environment around you and appreciate it mm-hmm. yeah mm. And you mentioned before that you uh, have done some marathons as well. Yeah. Uh, tell me about those. When was the first time you did a marathon? When... I think it was in 2012. Mm. I'd ran a 10 and realized that I quite enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And there's some people, you either like running or you don't. Mm-hmm. So I quite enjoyed it. And then Cape Town always has like a, a the Two Oceans Marathon. So it's a 56 and a 21. So the 21 is quite popular. So in 2013, I signed up for the first 21. And yeah, it was awesome. Enjoyed it. And then mm-hmm. just every year, just keep going. Mm-hmm. But now I've swapped running for hiking. But I'm doing a, a 21 now in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so yeah, I enjoy that. It's nice. It's nice. Just, it's a nice thinking space. Like you have mm-hmm. music and you just like run. And you have a lot of time to and think. You have yeah. a lot of time to think. Yeah. yeah. I find that too with running. It mm. just clears your head. Yeah. Yeah. You run with music or without music? Both. I just, it, I mix it up. Sometimes with a podcast or an oh, audio really? book or something. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've listened to actually, I did the, um, uh, Athens marathon. Nice. And, um, took me six hours and i listened to a whole audiobook from start to finish that's amazing yeah <laughs> and what about the people around you did they bother you much or it was not no. about them no it wasn't i mean it was nice to have people standing on the side of the road cheering for you which is kind of this amazing feeling mm. and i met a guy he must have been in his 60s you know running he was in front of me and he was um wearing this kind of spartan outfit the spartan oh, suit yeah and shoes with a cape and sandals oh you my know gosh. and uh, madman was he running he was running oh my gosh and it, it was amazing i took a photo <laughs> with him yeah that was cool <laughs> yeah you know i my body was not ready for it i had to walk half of it so that's good but i finished it and was, was happy with that yeah that's good yeah. i think up to up to 30 kilometers i can run but beyond that yeah same here like uh, I, I do, I don't enjoy the long ones. They have to be really special yeah. for me to do like a big. Like I, I would love to go back to base camp and do the Everest marathon. Oh, because you run, you run from base camp to Namche, um, okay. and in the different like microclimates. So you go from snow, you go from like where you feel like you're on Mars, and then you go to like the wow. hills with all the, the nature and the suspension bridges. Holy crap, I'm going to write this down. Yeah, it's, it's the, really The awesome. Everest Base Camp Marathon? Yes, it happens like always um, end of May. End of May. That's yeah. A, that sounds like the next big adventure. Nice. <laughs> I dare you. See you in 2020. <laughs> 2020. Yeah, I could do that in 2020. Yeah, enough time to train. 
Yeah, because I, I loved, I did um, a 16 kilometer run in the mountains in Switzerland. Nice. And it's so beautiful just to run around the mountains. And of course, you do a lot of altitude as well. Yes. You do 900 up, 900 down. Wow. It's pretty tiring, but also just amazing just to be in the mountains. And yeah. That one is special. That place is just incredible. Yeah. And so be, to be able to run like you're a superhero, mm -hmm. but for your own good. Mm -hmm. It's like also like even climbing these mountains as well. You must do it for your own good. Yes. Like always like these people that go summit and stuff. It's like have a good reason to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We met this really inspiring guy in Belfast. I uh, was there for the uh, Shape yes. Europe. It uh, was in, in Belfast this year, right? That's right. Okay. In Belfast. Uh, you know, it was called, this theme was the views from the fault line. It was just incredible to be in this place where it's been, you know, has been actually for a long time, this conflict zone between Ireland and the UK okay. is now part of the UK still, but doesn't want to leave the EU with the rest of the UK. Yeah. And that's a really incredible. But anyway, um, we met this guy there. He uh, is, is Irish and he was a, a sports person and uh, lost his eyesight in his 20s, I think. His, wow. his retina is just detached from his, um, or his eyeballs, uh, something, you know, something detaches, it's some sort of illness. Uh, it happens sort of gradually, not, not that slow, but over some months. And then you lose your vision completely. Wow. Uh, so he's completely blind. And uh, he decided that, I think he said actually he was depressed for several months, didn't leave the house for the first three months. Yeah, I just I, I can't imagine that because of course it's really different. You know, if you if you are born blind, then you you learn mm. and your brain also wires itself yes. to perceive things yes. differently. Yes. But if you grow up sighted and as a sports person and with using you know relying on your eyesight yeah. completely mm. like we do because we're so we we put so much dominance on our yeah. eyesight. Yeah. And then losing it and feeling disoriented and lost and stuck and mm. you know imprisoned. I think mm. probably. I'll imagine how depressed that might make one mm. and so he was and I don't know exactly what the trigger was but at some point he said no I have to I have to get out there and do something and he started doing exercise and, and getting out there and doing sports and he I think he competed in the Paralympics as well nice and then he decided that he wanted to be the first blind person to reach the South Pole that's incredible yeah and he did it um, he put a team together um, another Irish guy and they both had no, you know, like Arctic experience. So they said, okay, we needed someone, you know, from the Arctic who has some experience yes. with, with this kind of climate yeah. and environment. And they found this Norwegian guy and they sort of, before they approached him, they said, we've got to um, show them that we're serious. So they, for three months, just went to the gym and just trained, you know, every single part of their body mm -hmm. that mm. they needed and just became absolutely top fit in the wow. best shape of their lives. Wow. And then uh, they went to this Norwegian guy and said, hey, will you come to the South Pole with us, you know? And uh, he said, yeah, sure, if you raise some money, I'll, I'll come and, and I'll support you. And so then they, um, there's this guy that sponsors this kind of stuff. And um, they, what, what was that exactly? There was some, there was some, I think some minister, they wanted, they needed something. Um, and they called up this minister and they said, uh, he said, I'm going to be the, you know, I'm going to go to the South Pole. And this guy, yeah, okay. You know, I, you know, I hear this a lot. So like, you know, 
and um, and he said no and you know I'm serious I'm, I'm going to go to the South Pole I'm going to be the first blind person to go to the South Pole and the guy said I don't care what you are like <laughs> <laughs> and this is very gruff British dude and, yeah. um, and then but he said yeah they, they supported us uh, them the, the, the British government and they went and he became the first blind person to reach the pole Amazing. and then the even more incredible thing is that a few days later he um fell out of his balcony and uh broke his uh back oh and is now a paraplegic and um now runs a charity called run it in the dark because um, he's blind and, and a paraplegic wow yes. and uh, so he's in a wheelchair and He's raising money to bring about um, the cure for um, for paralysis through technology developing um, synthetic limbs uh, wow. that can be controlled, can be in implanted and mm. controlled by the body's nervous system and so on. Wow, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Anyway, we got a little bit distracted here. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were talking about... Uh, Everest and doing something really difficult mm. and um, doing it for, for you and having a good reason to go. Mm. Yeah. So for me, it was the cause with the, with the burn survivors. Yeah. So we actually took one with William. Um, he's 42 mm -hmm. and his house was petrol bombed during the apartheid. Wow. His dad was an activist, so mm -hmm. he got severely burned. Yeah. Like he doesn't have any hands. Wow. So his hands are just like stubs. Yeah. And his face is severely deformed. Yeah. as well like he doesn't have a nose and he's just got scars wow. and so for him it was a big thing yeah. um, but for me it was a big eye-opener as well yeah. around things we take for granted that others can't so because he doesn't have ha um, fingers yeah. he can't open a, a, a can bottle. of a bottle yeah. okay. he yeah. like you know they like kind of stubs so yeah. If he wants to eat like a, a handful of nuts, you have to throw them there and then he just grabs one by one. Yeah. And when you walk on the trek, um, you have people coming back from base mm -hmm. camp and then you coming through. And so everybody says Namaste because it's a Buddhist, um, the Kum Valley is like full of Buddhist people. Mm -hmm. And so it was just astounding how like, you know, there were some people who just would greet and walk on and then some who just like blankly stare at him. And like, you know, you can see with their body language that they're talking about each other, like, look at that man, what he looks like and stuff. And and it's like, he just was at a point like it, for me, I find, I found it concerning, mm. but he was just like so over it because that's yes. probably been the story of his right. life, right. like most of it. And yeah, it was just like a big eye opener around like being grateful yeah. for the simple things and the small battles you don't have to fight every day. Yeah. Like that in itself is, it and gives you the courage to just get on and appreciate life. Yeah. And the incredible acceptance that he has, like yes. to not get angry at people. For, yeah. 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 And there was this baby, the cutest baby ever in the one tea house. And he was just like so friendly and like always laughing. And, you know, he was like the one day he was like, he's like, you know, show me the baby. Like, you know, make sure that like I have eye contact with him. So like I, think the baby was like like look at him to see whether he would cry or not you know it's like the one thing i love about babies is just like it's like they see through people yeah and then i finished his sentence to say unlike grown-ups mm -hmm. i'm sure and mm -hmm. then he didn't say anything but that's what he was alluding to right like yeah. kids have the uncanny ability to see past his scars yeah and love and accept him yeah from that place right 
It's a very yeah, it's very interesting because it sort of says something I think kind of counterintuitive, which is that th there's like one la yeah, one layer of perception like which we think is somehow the most basic, mm. you know, like to see a scar is something very basic, yeah. but actually it's something that you are taught to do. Yes. A child doesn't see scars. Yes. A dog doesn't see them. Yes. I also love that about about dogs. They will treat yeah. everybody the same. Yeah. They're uh, the most or, conscious animals. Or yeah, based on what they feel from you, you know, yes. because if you are a, if you have anger with you, a dog will will get we'll very scared and yes. pick it up. Yeah. Um, very emotionally intelligent. I think like babies, and so we we train we train on top of that we train a perception skills, some, which some of them which are useful probably most of them but then we also train this uh, judgments mm. um which which actually prevent us from seeing deeper mm. into people yeah, yeah it was it was a big yeah eye opener and cammy the lady that runs the charity like for her she was like you know whenever you see people who like suffer burns and stuff go and smile at them mm. um instead of you know cringing like you can't mm. look at them smile yeah. and embrace them yeah. Um, yeah, because they embrace their uniqueness is her her slogan, mm. um, and yeah, and I learned a lot from that. Yeah. And like you know, she also highlighted how we don't see a lot of burn survivors because a lot of them only come out in the night. Mm. Um, and then within Black society, they think it's a curse on oh. the family to have a child that's been burned. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stigma. Yeah around burn survivors and a lot of them commit suicide as well oh. or become drug addicts or alcoholics because they can't deal with all the shaming uh, makes me think of this movie uh, V for Vendetta okay because I think he's also is a burn survivor oh is it and uh, he wears that mask you know the Guy Fawkes mask yes. because he doesn't want people to see his face yes so maybe that's the that's what some people do as well figure out a way to cover up and <laughs> <laughs> work for I don't know security force where you have to keep your face covered, covered or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah or, or play on a yeah some sort of sports team where your face is covered or something <laughs> <laughs> very strange yeah very interested interesting to hear about these kind of volunteering experiences that you have mm. what is the Global Shapers Hub in uh, Cape Town up to still in Bosch Mm -hmm. so, so we we about making um a marginalized community better off so it's called kayamandi mm -hmm. um so stellenbosch has this kind of in your face inequality where okay. like the top one percent of um south africa live within that environment mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of poverty as well mm -hmm. and you like it's very segregated mm -hmm. and it has kind of exacerbated a lot of crime so crime has kind of become quite prevalent um, a lot of like yeah brutal ones sometimes the student town mm. so students no longer feel very safe mm. um, and most of them like the root of them come from these communities so we've decided to say like it took us a while around the strategy for that to say in order to make Stellenbosch off it doesn't make sense trying to make the pretty side of town they don't need the help mm. everyone's self-sufficient they're um, these pockets of help we should try and bring them into these areas for them to understand the context and the challenges mm -hmm. and tackle them there on so that's our main focus now yeah. where we're gonna just try and see if we can run um, projects that are, are helpful in helping us to understand the area better mm -hmm. and to also like align them with the pillars that the community has mm -hmm. 
that Abdul, I, I'm sure they shared them with you guys at the summit as yeah. well. The sort of five the themes. The five themes, yeah. 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 yeah, so that's the main objective. Innovation, entrepreneurship, mm. inclusion, Ed- education. sustainability, education, and one more. Yeah, <laughs> so, so we'll be farming our projects on that. So one of the things that I want to do for Dignity Day is having a quick win around sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, teaching people to teach to respect boundaries mm. so something around the theme of boundaries oh, because I find like yeah. um, as a female in South Africa it's I don't know it's 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 just it's not it's I don't know whether culture it's cultural but you find like you know these blue collar workers you'll be walking down the street and they start like whistling yeah. or like saying something derogatory and it's like they have the right to right. Um, and it happens in different like environments so yeah. just like creating awareness around why that's wrong right. and like respect people for who they are and yeah. their boundaries. How do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Very interesting challenge. I'll have to like chat to the hub about it, but like we had a, a chat with Lynn and I forgot the guy from the Pune hub. We had quite mm. a nice, interesting chat about it on the bus back from the Ritz on mm. after Sidasha. that soiree. Sidasha, yes. Right. We had a yeah, long chat about it and I felt like, yeah, I need to do something. Yeah. Um, within the realm of like bringing, yeah, like people must, like sexual harassment is not forcing yourself on someone. Sometimes it's just right. the things you you unconsciously say and do yeah. to demean yeah. um, somebody because of their sexuality. Right. Um, and yeah. the difficulty always with, with teaching this kind of thing, I think, where um, is that... Um, well, it's kind of there's kind of a moral imperative to teach it, mm. and at the same time, if that's obvious to the mm. person you're trying to teach it to, they're less likely to be open to it because yes. it's the sort of defensiveness that yes. we have as human beings that yes. like we're not willing to see our own flaws. Yes, um, and like they see there's nothing wrong with it. Like if you yeah. say it's sexual harassment, it's like that's a bit of a strong word, right? And they're, they're more likely to get more defensive mm. uh, about that. There's actually some 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 research about. Because there's this something called the um, entrenchment effect. Two people, if they have a discussion or even an argument about a particular topic, um, usually afterwards, this is psychological research has found that people tend to be more entrenched into their existing con- positions rather mm. than um, coming closer to, to each other. Yeah, and that's kind of uh, kind of tragic. You know, it means that the discussion yeah. doesn't really work. But I think recently there's been more research on 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 what happens afterwards, mm-hmm. and it turns out that entrenchment is a temporary effect, and that over the long term, people through exposure to opposing viewpoints actually tend to do gravitate towards those viewpoints. Okay. But um, but the initial reaction is one of entrenchment, and then over time, the change of opinion happens kind of in leaps, mm-hmm. and then even to the point where people sort of disclaim sort of even owning a previous opinion you know like uh, uh, having a previous opinion mm. so so yeah um which i suppose it's you know this the way to get over this cognitive dissonance that yes. you know i'm a good person but i but um i have opinions that actually um, negatively valence somehow and um, if if i yeah the brain just sort of makes a leap and says yeah. oh no i never believed that and yeah and that, that's probably a healthy way to get over it but yeah. Then the question is like, how you know, what kind of discussions can you create? And then 
how can you do that over time mm. so that even though at the beginning you might feel like you're you're failing because yeah. you get a lot of pushback but then yeah. over time you you probably notice people's um, attitudes so, changing so one oh, now that you mentioned this now one of the shapers has a project called we exist so she invites people in a room mm-hmm. creates a safe space to have dialogue mm-hmm. and the, the objective is to try to make it as diverse as possible mm-hmm. so i think i will drive it through that like to see if it can be like one of the we exist initiative mm-hmm. and then we talk around um yeah, yeah sexual harassment yeah. and and decoupling it and help yeah. us to yeah get people's perspective because it's very broad yeah. and subjective yeah yeah sounds like a good idea mm. and the other one is on ad- adulting uh, other project that we want to <laughs> do an adulting series okay. like tax returns yeah. how of it okay um saving Yeah. Um, you know, people come with questions and we kind of answer them. Right. And we'll, it would be, I think it would be effective if we do it like as a vlog or something mm-hmm. um, that we can roll out and see how we can have impact to yeah. whoever yeah, may find it interesting. And also I'm quite interested around um, unpacking the fourth industrial revolution. So what I've been doing is I've been asking a lot of people whilst I've been here around what's your thoughts and perceptions of what the fourth industrial revolution is and what does it mean to you mm-hmm. and then going back home and asking the same questions expecting to get less in-depth answers right. around it and then and then see what i get like how many people are actually knowledgeable of it and how many people actually aren't mm-hmm. and then from that i i assume that we need to kind of find a way to bridge the knowledge gap in a healthy inclusive manner mm-hmm. make people aware that they are living in it yeah. make people aware of how they should embrace it yeah. and make people aware that it's here to enhance us as a human race mm-hmm. than kind of detract us or take over us right yeah do we need to become much more agile as human beings in this new world i think so We have to have the affinity to pivot mm. in a way. Some people don't. I do, but I know a lot of people that don't, like, that have issues with, you know what, yeah. the status quo has been working, let's leave it as yeah. is. But it's just like, let's think about it differently a bit yeah. and see what we could do to leverage on what's to come. Yeah. Yeah. Like this whole thing around the debate around reskilling the workplace for the future of work yeah. like a lot of the programs we do at work for leadership development and stuff mm-hmm. where you you take uh, the cohort of future leaders of the organization mm-hmm. should be engaging around these things what happens when your department all of a sudden gets 40% of the people automated yeah. but these are smart creative people yeah. with good critical thinking yeah. skills yeah. how do you reabsorb them to be doing something else what does that something yeah. else look like i saw a really interesting talk from peter diamandis just a couple of days ago where he talks about how ai will change the kind of employment landscape and i really like the way he, he did it he explained it. he said well basically there is uh, maybe we can put work on two axes the one axis is routine versus non-routine work mm-hmm. and the other axis is non-empathic and versus empathic work okay and so the stuff that is going to be automated quickly and easily is routine non-empathic work mm. there's no reason for a, a human to be involved yeah um and 
humans are not that good at that kind of work mm. um, because we get bored with it. Mm. And actually, most people don't want to do that kind of work. So yeah. actually, it's great if we do automate it. Then there's um, the routine empathic work. This is things like kind of, I guess, customer service, things mm -hmm. where uh, actually you might be able to automate a lot of it, but maybe you don't want to because you want to have human touch yes. and that might be like a value add yes. as an organization. And so uh, what he suggested is probably what will happen is that we'll try to uh, automate the inside of those jobs, everything okay. that doesn't interact with other people, that doesn't require to have that empathic side. Yes. And then the, we'll layer the kind of human around the machine. Nice. That's so that, interesting. What's the name of the, the, the uh, right? Uh, Peter, Peter Diamandis. Um, and he, he, he was giving this talk at the Singularity University Summit. Okay. He's one of the co-founders of the Singularity University. Okay. Yeah. Peter? Peter? Peter Diamandis. Yeah. Peter Diamandis. And actually, you're starting to see this already. I, I saw this. There's a, an AI startup that provides uh, an AI uh, system for uh, luxury brands for their customer service. And what they do is um, exactly that, that they have an AI system that when somebody calls, they can uh, create gener uh, generate uh, recommendations or uh, kind of pull all the context of that person together, what they want, kind of analyze what they say and mm. what they might mean by that. And But that doesn't interact with the customer with that, but yeah. provides a dashboard to the yeah. customer service agent who is, you know, highly trained and very empathic individual who's able to, you know, give the client, you know, what they what they need and want, mm. but has this AI agent as this sort of like assistant to okay. make them super powered. So when somebody calls, yeah. you know, if you call me and I'm the customer service agent of this luxury yes. brand, I know everything about you because I have this dashboard. Okay. Not only that, the dashboard makes gives recommendations to me about what I can do for you to That's make you even amazing. happier. That's so, amazing. Um, and exact kind of makes the best of both worlds, right? Makes the use of my ability to be empathetic mm. and creative, makes use of the machine's ability to analyze large amounts of data and mm. you know make this kind of pattern recognition and, and recommendations. It's actually it's quite. I think a, a model like that is very relevant in Ellen Gray because mm -hmm. they have like a very high touch empathetic model right. um, when it comes to dealing with clients calling in for queries and stuff. Yeah. But but it can't be like the calls just sometimes take too long. Yeah. And like the yeah the the grunt work after that call as well takes up too much of people's time, yeah. and like people are just overproductive on really unmeaningful work, yeah. like dealing with queries, right, and and Which, things that machines could be wired more right. effectively right. to deal with. Yeah, and then um, on the other side of the thing, the non-routine work, which can be non-empathic, and that's um, things like data analytics yes. like where you need to look at novel data yes. uh, and novel metrics and actually determine what to do with them yeah. so for also for example teaching machine learning algorithms like classifying training data yes. this is something that a human has to do yes. so but there's no empathic requirements and so these are going to be jobs in the future that humans will continue to do nice. but that we might find ways also to give them give the human support so that uh, ai agents can maybe even add somehow like an empathic component to it so mm. that the, it's more engaging for the human to, mm. to do the, the, the work that the machine can't can do. do. Mm. Um, and those, because machines can't do that work, those are always going to be very high paid positions. Mm. Mm. That's why, you know, data analysts today earn a lot of money yes. um, because this is something that just machines can't do and but they, but they need. So all this AI, uh, uh, um, um, all the AI startups need so many data analysts to, to classify data and do okay. all this stuff. Um, but but again, that's that's when it's non-routine because the thing is like it could be a routine. Like if you're looking at pictures of cats all day and just saying this is a cat, this is not a cat, this is a cat, you know, which is also training data. Mm. 
that's routine. Mm. But um, but uh, AI algorithms are just good, good, not good enough yet to yes. be able to do that. Yes. Um, and then the other aspect, uh, the other th fourth quadrant is the the non-routine high empathy work. Okay. And uh, that's work um, where psychologists fit in their drill. Yeah. And and then you might also think of doctors there. Mm. Um, although with 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 medicine also you can have some some sort of AI support like these diagnostic mm. Uh, um, mm. um, tools like IBM Watson that mm. can do diagnosis very well. But I think this, this is really interesting to think about this. Like, it's not going to be that a bunch of jobs that are just going to be replaced. It's more like we're going to automate certain tasks, and um, the job role of humans is going to be shaped around those tasks. Mm. And some of them, uh, probably, and it's interesting to think about this because often we think that um, some of the most well-paid jobs are also some of the most enjoyable. But that probably actually isn't the case mm -hmm. in most in most instances. And um, might be even more so in the future because actually the engaging work is you know being able to deal with people yes and and doing that but that might not be that well paid yeah whereas doing the being the the person who cleans data for AIs to be able to understand it that's a, a probably valuable. yeah very valuable but then also not probably not that enjoyable to do mm. it's kind of dull work so um, this is the the future of work we're <laughs> we're looking at yeah. Actually, in Switzerland, uh, stuff is progressing pretty rapidly because the wages are so high. Yes. So, if you can automate something, it just makes sense. So, especially something like um, construction, um, uh, there's some really advanced um, research at the ETH Zurich in uh, construction automation. Wow! Because you, if you have to pay, you know, in, in many countries, construction is a low-paid work, mm -hmm. but in Switzerland. Um, well, also, I guess, because of unions, but, mm. you know, that's, you can't really blame. I think they're good, actually, unions. Um, but people will earn in the construction industry, you know, five, six, seven thousand francs a, a month. And if you can, you know, if you need for a high rise, you need a hundred people on site. I mean, it's easily, it's <laughs> quite it's a lot of money, money that, yeah. you're, that you're spending on. Yeah. on the, so if you can make robots that can build buildings, um, at the end, maybe you only need five people on site with a lot of robots. Mm. Um then it doesn't matter if those robots cost millions of dollars like uh, it will easily pay for itself yeah yeah that's interesting yeah, yeah. and like in far in 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 south africa where those low score low skill jobs are critical mm -hmm. there's a kind of a moral dilemma around what do you do to transfer it and like a lot it's happening a lot in mining mm -hmm. where a lot of mines yeah. to save costs are starting to automate and move away from the influence of right. unions right and yeah yeah and, um, uh, and, and this is the whole joke in the U.S. as well, right? Trump has promised to bring back coal jobs, as if those were uh, actually. I mean, like, of course, like there's a lot of coal miners out of work. Yes. But those jobs aren't coming back, no matter what you do. No. Like that. No. And um, and I think that then somebody came up with a statistic that they lost something like five or ten thousand coal mining jobs, but we've gained something like a hundred thousand jobs in the uh, renewable energy sector. Yes. So it's like, well there's new jobs, but yes. we just need to retrain people. Yeah. So the reskilling element I think is going to become very crucial. Um in South Africa as well. Like how do you take somebody with low um critical thinking skills, numeracy, mm. literacy at all levels yeah. and try to reskill them for yeah. And it might be, industry. we might have to just move people into other sectors because yes. it might be that someone who's been a coal miner might actually not do that well mm. as a, 
a solar panel installer. Mm. That just mm. might not be their thing yeah. for, for many different reasons because even though they're in the same sector, those are very different kinds mm. of jobs mm. and maybe there's other kinds of jobs that are just much more suitable to that person. Yeah. It's, a, it's a difficult road ahead. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned before that there's like high kind of uh, prevalence of violence in, in Stellenbosch. Mm. Is that something you're tr- going to try to tackle as well somehow? I mean, this is such a difficult challenge. Yeah. So what we did was um, we tried to better understand the status, like what's the situation there. Mm. And we found that there isn't enough police support Mm -hmm. to kind of tackle the situation. So for every, I don't know, 100 people or 1,000 people, there's one car Mm -hmm. living in Stenemo. So meaning that if we all were burgled, all 1,000 of us were burgled at the same time. Right the policeman would have to do a lack of draw around mm-hmm. who does he help first, which is a problem. Right. So how they addressed it is that they took security companies, I don't know if it's very common in Switzerland, it probably isn't, where you have gated environment or private security companies. Right. So I'll pay them to look after my neighborhood and right. I pay a monthly premium yes. together with other, um, so that that's quite common. So they've yeah. come together with the police to create the capacity so that if a crime happens, there's at least four cars to every thousand people. Mm -hmm. And they've kind of had this designated number that somebody can call in the event of a crime Mm -hmm. happening. So we we did a a safety Stellenbosch initiative, Mm -hmm. but they were still in like a nascent stage of coming together, this this unit. So I think I'd like to pick up the, the conversation again and what we can just do is purely create awareness around the number to say instead of um, calling the police call this number you'll get more real time assistance Mm. Um, so it's 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 working with the mayor's office that's interesting um, to do that my initial kind of reaction to that is 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 there a danger to be privatizing you know security it it sounds like a a difficult thing or or a dangerous thing to privatize it is difficult because at the end of the day, they can't make an arrest as right. well. So if you helped yeah. by the, the, the security person right. rather than a police and yeah. somebody has a, a gun in their hand and it's like a fight off, yeah. you can't arrest them no. on the spot. Right. You have to wait for that's, the police to come and arrest them. Right. So That's dangerous. And, and and the other concern I would have is, is does that kind of increase in inequality because those uh, private security forces, they serve only richer areas, I guess? Yes. Yeah. So the area where we in, they're not supported in any way. So the the, the um, yeah the occurrences of violence and crime is like for them, for every two thousand person there's one car. So the statistics don't right. you know kind of right. weigh in their favor. So what, what 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 is the issue? Is there lack of funding of the police forces? Or? Yes. So at national level, right. they're thinking so this about is the national police force in South Africa. This is not managed yeah. locally. Yeah, it's it's yeah. there. There's like, they, in fact, they're thinking of cutting the staff by by a huge mm-hmm. uh, portion, which I don't understand why. Like, why would you do that? Right. And then, what are yeah. the other opportunities to change? That is there like cultural shifts that can be done? Like, also some I've heard about like initiatives, kind of violence reduction initiatives in communities where they just lead workshops and other kind of gatherings for people to come together and I guess especially like with some sort of kind of reconciliation 
structure where especially if you have victims of violence because mm-hmm. in, in some communities there's this kind of cycles of violence yeah. where somebody's um is is taking vengeance for a brother mm. or sister and the problem with the dr- with the violence is that also there's drugs right. like very ex- cheap access to drugs um yeah. involved yeah. like in probably 7 out of the 10 cases yeah um there's this person is under the influence of something so right. they have no cognitive right. like yeah they they're not in touch with the consequences of their actions yeah so this is the compl- more complex issue than yeah. just um, so it's about yeah. like if you were to take that off i don't know yeah if you could tackle the root of that um, can we like just legalize marijuana and get people it's high le- it's been legalized actually i read oh, really? a, an article in yesterday africa? in south wow. africa it's been legalized Crazy. so you can because because that seems like it might help because if, if people you know because people get violent on certain drugs but not mm-hmm. others mm. and if we can make access to the kinds of drugs that lead people to be more lethargic rather than violent that, that might be, be that might help but also i think that it comes back to society having more empathy so there's too yeah. few people with um a lot mm-hmm. and yep. a lot of people with nothing right and nothing is being done to kind of structurally readdress that yeah. and a lot is a, um is a, is attached to education yeah. and education is bad in south africa because there was a system in place to keep a lot of people marginalized from getting high quality education and yeah. so they just stuck yeah. and so you at some point you like i'm tired of being stuck i have kids family to feed yeah. so the motive be why, behind why they do what they do sometimes is with good intention mm. um but but others have to suffer yeah. so it's about this thing around yeah kind of ex, um, exerting a level of empathy mm. from those who have a lot to really get involved in readdressing the issue like mm. in south africa it's very common where you see somebody begging you start rolling up your window mm. you know um because you just want to protect yourself so i always try to develop a sense of empathy even if mm-hmm. i don't have anything i just greet them mm-hmm. and i won't roll down my window but i'll be like how are you doing you know yeah. sorry in a really polite way i don't have money for you or if i do have something or like i happen to not have finished my lunch i i must just be cognizant of keep the apple there and give it to the guy on the street mm-hmm. so if many people could do that give yeah. whatever is within your means to the guy on the street mm-hmm. and then get to know them a bit better like a lot of people when you hear people who've come off the street it's because of one person investing in them relationally not financially to kind of motivate them and understand the root cause mm-hmm. and do whatever they can to do yeah. it so if there's if there's you know 4 million or say 15 million of south africans in poverty and 4 million who are middle class and 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 well off and each of them could pick a cohort I think that would make a difference. It's a bit idealistic, but I think that's the solution. Like empathy actually is a solution to mm. to trying to mitigate things. Throwing the people in jail. Sometimes jail is sometimes a more comfortable place than being on the street mm. for some of them. Mm. Um and it doesn't give them a wake up call because they leave, they come out of the prison, they back, they stuck in the same right. situation and they go back to what they know works best. So it doesn't help. Yeah. In any ways. Mm. There's no uh, this is a problem I think for many countries around the world there's no kind of focus on giving people skills in prisons and and actually yeah supporting them with building a life before mm. they come out. Yeah. Cuz if if somebody if left prison with 
a job and an apartment and a, you know a life then that have a bit of dignity right so empathy is the answer i think so i think so as best as you can without harming yourself of course mm. um and being too naive but yeah i don't know i think i think so because money doesn't oftentimes solve the problem like they say rather give them food than give them money because they oftentimes go and buy drugs with the money right so so empathy is about getting to the heart of why you're on the street and i remember this one time we were having like a prayer session with some friends from church near McDonald's and this um homeless guy comes and he is like you know well please can you pray for me and he's like you know what do you want prayer for and he's like oh to to get off the streets and go back home i think it's time to go back home and it sounded like he came from a relatively stable environment mm. and then there may have been a bit of conflict in the house mm. but he's come to a point now where he realizes that you know what i'm actually worse better off trying to go and make amends there than being here mm. because it hasn't been good for me so it also like gave me a perspective around like you know the root of people landing homeless are oftentimes they come from very functional environments there's just a trigger of dysfunction that comes along the way and then it's very hard to go back once you identify as being homeless right. it goes from like bad to really worse yeah thank you for sharing <laughs> that everything actually so i think uh We've reached two hours and twenty oh minutes almost. So <laughs> let's uh, wrap it up there. Okay, um, awesome. Thanks, Josh. Yeah. This felt like a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> Today's quote is from Marianne Williamson. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of the universe. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people will not feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of the universe that is within us. It is not just in some of us. It is in everyone, and as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give others permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of this conversation. Please share this podcast with other people who might enjoy it. Make sure to also leave a review in your podcast app if you can. That helps other people find great content. I don't run ads on this podcast, but there are two ways that you can support the show and keep it going. The first is by contributing directly to the production cost on Patreon. Statistically, very few people support podcasts directly, which is why most shows resort to running ads. If you want to make sure media is made for you and not to please advertisers, then I suggest you pay for media that you consume. And statistically, out of every 10,000 listeners, 200 might support me directly. If these 200 put in $20 a month each, this will become a professional podcast and will continue indefinitely. If you would like to be one of these 200 people, go to patreon.com slash 
Josh Levent. The second way to support me is to make use of my professional services. I am a leadership and life coach. If you would benefit from some constructive conversations about your life and work, go to joshlevent.com slash coaching to find out more about my coaching services. Thank you.